0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm a senior pastor here at Center Point Fellowship. I wish you a happy Easter. I'm so glad you're here with us worshiping this Sunday morning. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about what happened that first Easter Sunday. And we're going to look at uh, the account that's given to us in chapter 20 of John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, he wrote, he was inspired by God to write a masterful account where different people came face to face with Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at two people who came face to face with him after he rose from the dead. And so inside your bulletin, you will find an outline uh, with the names of the two people that, were, that he met today and had a brief conversation with. Mary Magdalene, a woman who helped support Jesus' ministry, and Thomas, one of the original 12 disciples. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about that. And John told us in his gospel in chapter 20, he said that the reason he wrote all of this, this is from John chapter 20, listen to this. He said, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, meaning his gospel. But he said, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection. John isn't talking about that this is a fable or a moral or a good story. This is an eyewitness account that really happened, and it changed John's life forever change the life of Mary Magdalene and Thomas too, and you'll see how. And the idea is for us to come to terms with this because a risen Savior has the power to change your life and mine too. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be here today and to remember what happened that first Easter. I pray that you'll speak, that you move me out of the way, and open our eyes to what you want us to see. Thank you so much for John faithfully recording these things. God, I'm grateful. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. If you need a pen, by the way, to fill in the blanks, if you're new, it's here. We'll have ushers coming up down the aisles, and they'll pass a pen to you. If you just raise your hand, that way you can take some notes, and um, we can just jump right in. Point one, on Easter Sunday morning, that first Easter, Mary Magdalene, the woman I was speaking about a minute ago, met Jesus face to face. Here's how it happened, John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, that's Jesus' tomb, and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. I want to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. This is a rolling stone tomb. A type of tomb that was used in the day when Jesus was crucified. If you were a family of means, you had enough financial wealth, you could employ someone to chisel out a family crypt for you. In a limestone cave, and there are a number of these around Jerusalem, where somebody would go and chisel this out. They would chisel out a small cave Most of them, I mean, you'd have to pay a fortune for somebody to chisel out something tall enough for me to stand in. But many of them were just small caves, maybe four, five feet high at the most. And they would be a small room, and the entrance would be shorter than that. The entrance would be just big enough that a person backing in could bend over while carrying a stretcher. Another person uh, would be on the other end of it. And you could back into the cave carrying a stretcher bearing the body of the person who just passed away. Once you got inside the cave, you would take the body and place it, and on either side of the entrance, there would be a shelf, and on that shelf or a little ledge, the body would be placed. It would be wrapped in burial cloths and placed there, and then after the body was placed and put in position, then the person would come out, they'd chiseled away a stone, a heavy stone, and a track in front of the little cave in the opening with a notch cut in front of it, so that after you came out, you'd roll the stone in place, and it would drop in and Seal the crypt. Jesus' body, Jesus died on Good Friday. He was crucified, a horrible way to die, and it's called Good Friday because as Christians we've come to understand that he died to forgive our sins. So it was good for us, it was horrible for him. But after he died, one of the ruling council stepped forward, a man named Joseph from Arimathea. He had not agreed what the others had done. It was shameful and horrible how they had accused Jesus of crimes he never committed and insisted on his death. And he asked that Jesus' body be given to him so he could place Jesus' body in his tomb. He was a man of means. And so a friend of his, Nicodemus, came with him. They took Jesus' body down late that Friday afternoon, and they brought it to the tomb. They embalmed it there briefly. They put a long linen sheet over him, and then strips of linen were wrapped around him. Together with about 75 pounds of perfume and spices. And, I mean, that was enough for a funeral for a king, and they believed that's who Jesus was, the King of Kings. And so they placed his body on that shelf, and they hurried to get out of there because they were devoted Jews who observed the Sabbath, and the Sabbath began at sundown on Friday, so they had to do this quickly. And as the sun was setting, they got out of the tomb, rolled the stone in place. The women who attended Jesus had seen where the body was, and They'd made up their minds to do a better job, finish the task. After the Sabbath was over, they would come back. Well, they couldn't come back after sundown on Saturday night because it would still be dark. They had to wait all the way till Sunday morning. And so that's when Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. Start again. So early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the stone in front of the entrance had been rolled away. So she ran and she found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, And that's how John wrote this. He was modest and didn't put his name in there. He would describe himself, talk about himself in the third person here. And she said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple, that's John again, started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John is too modest to give us his name, but he wants us to know that Jesus loved him better, and he was faster than Peter. Okay, anyway... (laughs) And the better-looking disciple, okay, or something, you know, it just makes me laugh. Okay, anyway, the one who was faster than Peter got there first. He stooped in, looked in, and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said that Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. So they get there on Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene has startled them. She's come back. She's gone there right as the sun's coming up. She comes and tells them, hey, Jesus' body's missing. The tomb's open. I don't know what's going on. And so they ran out there. And when they get there, they discover Jesus' body is indeed gone. But there's something strange. And there's a note here for you. Jesus' grave wrappings remained like an empty cocoon. Okay, now, this is quite something. I mean, no grave robber would have done this. When Jesus' body was wrapped in these wrappings with all these spices and perfumes, it was intended to stay there. And it was to honor that person, and even as the body decayed, to give it a more pleasant fragrance. No grave robber would come in, take the bo- unwrap the body, take the body out and then put the wrappings back the way they're supposed to be and take the part that covered the head and neatly fold it. I mean, no grave robber is going to do this. It's like somebody robbing your house and stealing your television, leaving you a note. Hey, I took your TV, but the den is spotless. Okay. And I'm going to wash dishes on the way out. You don't fold stuff if you're a grave robber. And so Peter and John are looking at these wrappings and it's It's not that somebody's taken the whole body and everything's gone. It's that the body's gone, but the wrappings are right there. It's like Jesus has gone right through them. And they're trying to figure out what this means. Now, again, all these details are in here because John wants us to believe. Now, it's also important to note here that the disciples were as surprised as anybody that his body was gone and that Jesus' tomb was empty because they were the ones with the best motive to steal the body. This is from Matthew's gospel, the end of Matthew's account. even makes it clear that that's exactly what the chief priests, the people who had accused Jesus of being a blasphemer and of being a liar and a fraud. Well, they were terribly worried that the disciples would get into the tomb and steal the body to claim that he had risen from the dead. This is what Matthew records for us. Jesus had died Friday afternoon, good Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, these same people that had been at Pilate's house early Friday demanding that he be crucified came back a day later on Saturday morning, and they said this. The leading priests and the Pharisees went to see Pilate, and they told him, Sir, we remember that that deceiver, they're speaking of Jesus here, that deceiver once said, well, he was still alive. After three days, I'll rise from the dead. So not only had Jesus' disciples heard it, Jesus' enemies had heard it. If anybody ever tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, Jesus never said he was going to rise from the dead, yeah, even his enemies believed that he had said that. That's what he claimed. And they thought he was a liar and a deceiver. They just want to make sure the disciples weren't going to steal the body and pull a hoax. So we request, they're talking to pilot here. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. But now here it is Sunday morning. And the tomb was sealed, by the way. Pilate said, go and make it as secure as you can. He sent a detachment of soldiers. They put a cord across with wax seals on either side of the stone so that nobody would move it under penalty of law. There were soldiers stationed in front of the tomb. We learned from some of the other accounts that what happened, though, early on that Sunday morning, an angel came. There was an earthquake, and an angel came and moved the stone out of the way. And when the soldiers guarding the tomb saw the angel, they were so terrified they fell fell back in a dead faint. I mean, they passed out. And so by the time Mary gets there, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. Now, it's important to note here, the stone was rolled away so that Jesus' followers could get in, not so Jesus could get out. Never think that. It wasn't that Jesus had been crucified, beaten within an inch of his life with a lead-tipped whip, had a crown of thorns beaten into his skull, um, spit on, mocked. A, a, a spear jammed through his side. And then somehow, mistakenly, people thought he was dead when he really wasn't. They put him in the tomb and the coolness of the tomb, he kind of revived. And thankfully, an angel came down, rolled the stone away and said, "Coming out, Jesus. And Jesus kind of crawled out. Okay, if you think that's what happened, that's not what happened at all. The stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, so the disciples could get in and see that he was long gone. In the early church, And for centuries, Christians have been reminding each other of the truth of this by a a little expression they would say back and forth. And they would use this on Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday, and many other Sunday mornings as well, by tradition, the person leading the worship service would say, Christ is risen. And the people in the audience would respond, He is risen indeed. Let's try that together. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And all these things were written so we could say that with conviction. And that's what The Lord wanted John to believe and Peter to believe and Mary Magdalene to believe. And it's what John recorded. So we can believe it too. They, God wanted them to get in so they could sort through all this. In Isaiah 53, here are a couple of prophecies. Remember John had said they hadn't understood the scriptures that said, Jesus must rise from the dead. Here are a couple of them. Isaiah 53 verses nine and 12 written about 600 years before the crucifixion ever took place. Speaking of Jesus, The prophet Isaiah wrote, he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Jesus died between two criminals, and he was put in Joseph of Arimathea's family crypt. Um, Also, it uh, it says there that I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. And people wondered for centuries, what does that mean? How do you kind of get exposed to death? after you're buried in a rich man's tomb. Psalm 1610 also says, For you will not leave my soul among the dead or, you're allow, or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. What was that? Well, when John saw the wrappings and Peter saw the wrappings and they realized that the guards had left and the tomb was empty, John says the penny dropped and it all made sense for them. Jesus had risen From the dead, and they believed. There's a life application for you and me in this. God wants us to believe this too. It's important we understand this because Paul makes it clear that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then our faith, faith in Christ is worthless. The doctrine of the resurrection is central to the Christian faith. You pull out the resurrection, all of Christianity falls like a house of cards. It does. Because even as his enemies pointed out, Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day. If he didn't rise on the third day, then he's a liar. He also said he was the son of God. Well, if he didn't rise from the dead, that's something only God could do. He's not the son of God. He was just a liar. He was a pretender. And good riddance. We're glad he's dead. But if he did rise from the dead, that changes everything. Listen to how Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you, are, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life or more to be pitied than anyone in the whole world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. And that brings us to our next life application because Jesus did rise from the grave, there are three things that follow. There's more than this, but there are three things that clearly follow. Because Jesus did rise from the grave, first of all, I no longer need to fear death, and neither do you, because Jesus proved he is stronger than death. If that's good news to you this morning, you say amen. amen. Yeah, he proved it. Now, if he didn't rise from the dead, he didn't prove anything. He's just another guy who died. But if he did rise from the dead, it proves he's stronger than death. I mean, that is one enemy we will all face sooner or later. And the reason we put our faith in Christ is this is someone who's conquered the grave. This gives us great hope. I listed for you some verses to read from Romans chapter 6. Let me read you Romans 6, 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any power over him. And We put our faith in Jesus and we sing praises to Jesus because he's stronger than the grave. We don't have to be afraid of dying anymore. I mean, this was really brought home to me. Some of you have heard me speak of my grandmother before. She loved the Lord with all of her heart, and she was blessed with long life. She lived to be 101. And somewhere, uh, when she was uh, close to 101, she fell and broke her hip. She'd been having other health problems, and her bones had gotten real brittle and everything. And after her hip was broken, just one there was one symptom after another, one sort of health concern. They all kind of dominoed together, and it became clear that she wasn't going to live very long. She got very ill. And uh, so someone was sent, a pastor from her, the church that she was a part of was sent to pray with her. A young pastor was there. He was newly appointed, and she would outlived like five pastors. I mean, she was 101, you know what I mean? And so this guy came out there didn't know her, and it was the first time he was going to pray with her, and so he went to pray with my grandmother, went to this retirement home where she was, and grabbed her hold her hand, and her name was Catherine, and and grabbed a hold of her hand and said, "Miss Catherine, we're going to pray that God's going to heal you and you're going to get out of bed and you're going to go back home again. And she pulled her hand away and she said, you will do no such thing. You are going to pray that the Lord's going to take me home and I'm going to get a new body that's going to live forever. This one's shot. Now, if you're not going to pray for that, get somebody in here who will. (laughs) And if you knew my grandmother, that's the way she lived. I mean, she believed this stuff. Look, if Jesus rose from the dead... He came back with, a, you'll see in a minute, he came back with a glorified body, an amazing body. Paul tells us later in, in that same letter to the Corinthians, he says, we're going to all have brand new bodies that will never die again. Well, all that is just the vain hope of an old woman who's dying, grasping at straws if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. But if he did rise from the dead, and he did, then I don't need to fear dying. And grandma was right. She was right. And she put her faith in Jesus. And right now, she has a brand new body. She's healthier than she ever was. Secondly, because Jesus did rise from the dead, I can be confident that God can remake me into a new person. Not only do I hope, have the hope of a new body someday, I have the hope of a new life this day because the same power, the same power that conquered the grave lives in me. Now look, there have been all kinds of hymns written about the wonder-working power Through Jesus. Well, this is amazing. If Jesus can come back from the dead, he has that kind of power, then what problem can he not handle? And this is good news. I've listed for you Ephesians 1 19 and 20 and Philippians 2 13. They both talk about this that if you come to Christ, if you and I come to Christ and we surrender our lives to him, he will give us the desire to follow him and the power to follow through. So if you're struggling with an addiction, bring it to Jesus. You want to control your temper, control your tongue? You want to forgive someone and you can't? You want to get rid of a fear that's been gripping you so hard that you can't sleep at night? Let's surrender it to Jesus. There's power there. The same power that conquered the grave is available to you and me if we'll surrender our lives to him. That's why Jesus was able to say, come to me. If you're weary and heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest for your souls. And that brings us to the third part here. Third point, because Jesus did rise from the dead, I can trust all the other promises Jesus made. Like that one about him giving us rest for our souls, forgiving all our sins, preparing a place for us in heaven and coming back and getting us when everything's ready, hearing our prayers when we pray to him. Well, all those things are null and void if he didn't really rise from the dead because he was just a pretender and a liar. But if he did rise from the dead, and he did, then all those things are still in force. And that's why Christians would greet each other with that saying, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Indeed. And John recorded this so we could believe. I mean, John didn't record this making himself look good. He recorded it making himself look bad. He said, I don't know why we didn't put it together until we saw it there. But I was still faster than Peter. Anyway, so we'll go on. Now, apparently... Peter and John left the tomb and didn't share all their conclusions with Mary Magdalene, who was sitting outside, who was standing outside. So the story goes on. If you flip your outline over, we'll jump jump back into the story in verse 11. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene was standing outside the tomb crying. If you cross out the word crying and write the word wailing, wailing would be more accurate. This is a deep, heavy cry. Why would she be wailing and tearful? Well, let's put it this way. She had idolized Jesus. She had worshipped him as her Lord, literally. And then she watched him mistreated and beaten, whipped, mocked, crucified. Beaten beyond recognition. I mean, one of the other prophecies in Isaiah is that he would be beaten so much we couldn't even recognize him, that he was human. She'd seen it all. When she'd watched his body placed in the tomb, then when she was going to go back and at least give him a better burial. Now, even that was taken from her because the body was missing. I mean, how could this get any worse? So she was standing outside the tomb, wailing. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other of the foot of that ledge where Jesus' body was placed, where he'd been lying. And the angel said to her, Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there, and it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Again, the last time she'd seen him, he was a bloody mess. and Now he was whole and healthy, and her eyes were probably swollen with tears. Dear woman, why are you crying, Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? And she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, then tell me where you put him, and I'll go get him. Mary, Jesus said. And she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which, in, which is Hebrew for teacher or great teacher. It's a sign of great respect. And I didn't have room to put everything in here, but where the little dot 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 is, apparently Mary ran over and clung to him. And the scripture says Jesus said to her, Mary, don't cling to me. He probably said, Mary, don't cling so tight, okay? Don't <laughs> cling to me. Because she ran to him and grabbed him, teacher. He said, go tell my disciples that I've risen. Go find my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. Now, it's important to note something here. Mary Magdalene knew Jesus' voice when he called her by name because he was the one who would rescued her from the devil and he gave her a new life. In Luke chapter 8, To find out a little background about Mary Magdalene, when Jesus had been preaching and teaching across the countryside, he took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women that he had healed and from whom he had cast out evil spirits. Among those women was Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. I don't know what kind of lifestyle she had that would enable her to be possessed by seven demons, but she had known the devil, and she had known great pain and sin and bondage. And Jesus had set her free and given her a whole new life. And that's why it was devastating when she had seen him so shamefully and horribly mistreated and murdered. And now all of a sudden he was back again. In fact, back better than he'd ever been. When she recognized his voice. Jesus had predicted this type of thing from people who loved him. In John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. They know my voice. This still happens, by the way. People surrender their lives to Christ. Funny thing happens. All of a sudden, the Bible comes alive because God places his Holy Spirit inside of us. And it happens to me every so often. Somebody will call me or write me. They've been reading the Bible. Some of you began reading your Bible at the beginning of the year and you read it every day and, and I'll get an email and I'll go, you're not going to believe this. I was reading my Bible today and I know this was written thousands of years ago, this passage, but this paragraph right here applies exactly to me, exactly what I'm going through right now. I mean, and they'll tell me this is what I was praying for and this is what I read. It's as if somebody had planned the whole thing. They did. Okay? And it was God and he is speaking to you. Has anybody here had a similar experience happen in your life? If it has, hold your hand high. A lot of hands going up. It's happened to me. And when God speaks, his sheep know his voice. Now, again, if I'm going to know his voice, I need first of all, I need to be listening, of course. But it's a reminder to us all of this life application. Jesus didn't just come for Mary. He came for all of us. Jesus came to rescue all of us from the power of the devil and give us new life. That's why he died on the cross. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood for only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Jesus died so I could live. I was the one who deserved God's wrath poured out on me. So were you. But God's wrath was poured out on him instead. He suffered so I could go free. And John says, you need to understand, it's all true. Our sins have been paid for in full. Jesus proved it by rising from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, all of a sudden Mary's life was changed. She went from tears of sorrow to tears of joy because of her resurrected Jesus. Well, the story goes on in John chapter 20. That was early in the morning. John's account goes on to later that Sunday evening. The disciples have gathered, or most of them have. There are 10 of them together. Judas has died. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus, and he realized the consequences of betrayal. He went and hung himself. And so they're down to 11. And Thomas, for whatever reason, isn't with the other 10 when they're meeting together that Easter Sunday night. And Jesus appears to them. And point two reminds us that Thomas refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he saw Jesus face to face. Here's what John writes about this. That Sunday evening, that's that first Easter Sunday, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you. Please underline that phrase, please. I'll come back to that in a minute. Peace be with you, Jesus said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. One of the disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them peace be with you. Please underline that again, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, now you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Just a couple of observations from that paragraph. I had you underline peace be with you because it's significant that both times Jesus appeared, his greeting was peace be with you. When you are hiding from the chief priest and you're afraid at any minute somebody's going to come banging on the door, demanding that you come out so they can arrest you and crucify you, you are not experiencing peace. And some of them in the room probably were kind of worried because they'd heard that Jesus was alive and Peter and John had come back and Mary Magdalene had insisted that she had seen him. And and now they're probably kind of worried about, well, how that conversation is going to go when they meet Jesus again. Because, I mean, let's face it. I mean, if the last time you saw Jesus, what you did was deny him and run away as cowards, you're probably thinking you're going to get blasted by him if you ever meet him again. I mean, if I've insulted you and betrayed your friendship or other things like this, and I see you in aisle six in Walmart, I'm going down aisle seven. I mean, I don't want that confrontation. Yet here's what's interesting. When Jesus appeared in that room, he didn't come in and chew them out. He said, peace be with you. When he appeared again, peace be with you. And this is another thing that Jesus had promised his disciples, and it only carries weight if he really did rise from the dead. This is uh, in the margin, right? John 14, 27, please. John 14, 27. Let me read this for you. Jesus had promised. This is another one of those promises he made. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus said, I'm going to give you peace that transcends your circumstances. See, the world's peace, the world says you can have peace if there's plenty of money in your bank account and you've got good health and your marriage is going well and nobody's sick and your kids are listening to you and it's all good. But if work goes south or your health goes south or a relationship goes south, man, you got to get drunk, you got to get high, you got to get some Xanax, you got to get something because you got to get medication to deal with this. And Jesus says, No, I came to give you peace. Not peace like the world gives where everything's going just one way. I came to give you peace in the middle of difficult circumstances. So here, when they were behind locked doors, afraid of people knocking on the door, Jesus came and brought them peace. Do you know I've experienced this so many times in my ministry? It was one of the great eye-opening things about how to do good ministry that was brought home to me by a gentleman named Earl Andrews. I served with him for a number of years. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. But Earl was one of the best pastoral care people I've ever met in my life. He mentored me a lot in being a pastor. And never forget one time he wanted me to come with him because there was a family in the church where I was serving with him where um, there had been a tragic car accident and a beloved family member had died. He said, I want you to come with me. You need to learn how to handle these situations. And it was just raw grief. And I remember on the car ride over there, I said, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to say? And he said, we're not going to say hardly anything. We're just going to hug them and listen to them and then we'll pray with them. And I said, what are we going to pray for? And said, we're going to pray for peace, a peace that passes all understanding. They would be confident that the risen Savior has power for this situation, too, and he can give them strength for this hour. And so we went over there, and I watched Earl do this. And he loved those people, and he hugged them, and he listened to them. And before we left, he said, can we pray? And we joined hands, and he prayed God's presence would fill the room and grant us peace. And I promise you, it was like somebody just flooded the room with a sweet aroma. I've prayed with people in many situations like that since. And they come away going, I don't understand this. My situation hasn't changed, but I'm not worried anymore. I've got peace. Can anybody relate to what I'm saying on this one? Yeah. Well, that's not fantasy based on some legend. That's a promise from the risen Savior. And now Thomas saw him, experienced that peace, and he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, I'm glad you believe now. Stop doubting believe. And Thomas was moved from a position of doubt to faith. Mary had been moved from a position of sorrow to joy. And I want to make one more note here real quickly. Sometimes people say, well, yeah, but it's all contingent on faith. Why does it require faith? Well, all relationships, any meaningful relationship you're in is impossible without faith, without trust. I mean, think about it. You're going to buy a car from a car dealer you don't trust? You're going to leave your kids with a babysitter you don't trust? You're going to get your hair cut from a barber you don't trust? Once. That's why you don't trust them anymore. We even talk about this in dating relationship. A guy and a girl will date each other for years and all of a sudden they're not going out anymore and you ask the girl, why'd you leave him? He wasn't faithful. What's faith got to do with it? It's a relationship. Relationships are impossible without faith. You're going to have a relationship with God sooner or later. If you want to have a relationship with an all-knowing, all-powerful being who's lived forever, his perspective is going to be different from ours sooner or later. And we're going to have to trust him Maybe he's got the long view and his long view involves thousands of years. So he's going to see things from a different perspective. And if I only trust him as long as he answers things, answers prayers exactly how I want, well, then it's not a relationship at all. That's just me demanding that he be a genie for me. Answer my wish or I won't believe in you anymore. That's not a relationship. It's manipulation. So faith is required for relationship. So we live by faith. That's our life application here. Paul said this. We live by faith, not sight. I mean, Thomas believed because he saw. And Jesus said, well, good for you, Thomas. But you're going to have to tell other people. They're going to have to believe without seeing. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. That's why Jesus said, Thomas, quit doubting and believe. And Thomas did. Because of the resurrection, Thomas went from being a doubter to a believer. Mary Magdalene went from being a woman of sorrow to a woman of joy. But John, is that still happening today? Yep. When people meet Christ, he's still changing lives today. I want you to hear what a friend of mine, Leila Palmer, had to say about this.
1: My name is Layla Palmer, and I lived a Layla-centered life for the first 29 years of my life. I went to church while I was in high school for a little while for my mom, not really for me. I definitely didn't get out of it what I know she hoped I would. I prayed before meals at my grandma's house, but that was really the extent of my relationship with God, which I didn't have one. If I had a problem, I thought that I had to fix it. If I had to make a decision, I really truly believe that. I controlled my destiny. I had to make my own decisions. I had to fix my own problems. I, I, I. Fast forward to now I'm 30, and I meet the man of my dreams, and everything that is wrong with my life now is just gonna fade away. Fast forward again to mid-30s. We're struggling financially. We are making a lot of bad decisions. So we've got all these issues. We're not communicating well. We have $20 in our checking account, and we have no hope. We could go buy a week's worth of groceries, or we could go to a fast food restaurant and spend it all on greasy cheeseburgers, which is what we did. So we pulled up to the drive-through. We get up to the window to pay. And the girl in the window says, no, uh, the lady in front of you paid. And she just wanted to say, God bless you. And we felt like in that moment, for the first time, like like God had just entered the vehicle. We we both just started bawling. I mean, we just completely um, became aware that joy doesn't come from what you're missing. It comes from the one who made you. And I didn't know the one that made me. And it set us off on an adventure to seek God and know God. Finally had the guts to go to church, find a church. Three people had mentioned Center Point and we felt like, all right, this this is it. And we walked in that day and were blown away and that same week is when I surrendered my heart to Jesus. I got baptized that same year, and I've been growing my relationship with God ever since. It's just getting stronger and stronger, and I've um, met friends. I've got friends at church. I've, I've been more in love with my husband than ever. Um, we're adopting a child. Um, I pray, and I read the Bible, and I it comes alive. The Bible comes alive. Why did I not read it for 29 years? I have no idea. But I love it now, and God is just working in ways that I never thought possible.
0: You can applaud that. Because Jesus rose from the dead, Mary Magdalene went from wailing Hanging on. Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you're back. Great joy. Thomas went from being a doubter to a missionary. Layla went from somebody who was relying on herself to somebody who was relying on Jesus, which is always a better option. But here's the question for you and me: if Jesus really rose from the dead, and he did. Where is he trying to move you and me today? I mean, this Easter Sunday of 2014. What needs to change in my life? I mean, is there a sin I need to confess? Jesus forgives sin. I mean, it's all true. If he rose from the dead, he said, Are you come to me? I won't cast you out. I'll forgive you your sins. All we need to do is confess him, and he'll forgive us. Is there a sin that needs to be confessed? Is there a fear that needs to be surrendered? Are we holding a grudge? We need to say, God, I need to have faith that you're going to settle the score. I don't need to handle this myself. Am I afraid of dying? I'm taken care of. And so what stands between you and God? Is there a corner of my life that's unsurrendered? Well, let's surrender today. And what are we waiting for? Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you that Everyone who comes to you can become a child of yours. But we have to receive you and believe that this is really true. And so, God, I pray that you would move us from doubt to faith like you did with Thomas. I pray, Lord, that we would have faith that your promises are true. If we confess our sins, you'll forgive us our sins. That if we read the Bible, you'll speak to us. If we'll listen, that if we're afraid to step out on faith and trust you about a big decision or honor or calling, that you'll give us not only the desire, but the power to become the people you want us to be. And Father, I pray that if there's someone here today dealing with an addiction, that they go, I, just, I, don't know, I can't try again. I've failed too many times, Lord. They'd realize, well, they've failed, but your power hasn't even yet begun to work. Now, God, I pray that we would believe that you're alive and there's no problem you cannot handle. In just a moment of silence right now, if there's a part of your life that is unsurrendered to God, a fear, a doubt, a sin, whatever it is, would you bring it to Jesus and say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm tired of being sad, Lord. I want to be filled with joy. I'm tired of doubting, Lord. I want to believe. I'm tired of relying on myself, Lord. I want to depend on you. I want you to guide me. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.